And please follow me as we read the scripture accompanying today's message. This is God's word from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 and verse 16. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them to where Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mr. Rudd. And uh, thanks again to this church for... Uh, letting us be your ministry to college students and uh, loving and supporting us. Uh, so glad so many people came out of town just for REF Sunday. It's really great. Um, we're, uh, we're, as you can tell, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. And I think what's important to know about Matthew is he is writing uh, to mainly a Jewish audience. And everything he's doing in Matthew is trying to convince his readers that this Jesus is the promised Messiah, the long-awaited one from the Old Testament. Or maybe the language we would use is he's the hero. He's the hero that's come to set the world to rights by defeating death and sin and Satan. And this is, if you kind of go with our hero theme, this is his origin story. This is when he shows up. And it, when we think of an arrival of a hero, most of us think, oh, that's awesome. That's great. I, I love when a hero arrives. But if you really think about it, people have different reactions when a hero arrives. Because your reaction to a hero's entrance is always related to what you think the hero is doing to and for you, right? So let's take uh, like the Dark Knight trilogy or let's take Batman. When Batman comes on the scene, you realize there's different reactions. So if you are the guy that's being uh, held up in a bank heist at gunpoint and Batman shows up, it's good news. You're saved, you're rescued, you celebrate, you love him. But if you're the Joker who's trying to kind of have this uh, kingdom of confusion and violence and darkness, when Batman shows up, you don't celebrate, you hate him because he's threatening the kingdom you're trying to establish. 
right? But then let's say you're uh, like Commissioner Gordon or these politicians or police. Whenever the hero Batman shows up, it's, it's very interesting. It's kind of differing reactions because on the one hand, they kind of like him because they, you know, Batman kind of helps what they do, kind of defeats some of the evil. But also they don't like him because they have this system of policing and keeping people in order. And whenever Batman shows up, it kind of messes up their system. So they kind of go back and forth. But here's the principle. When the hero arrives, you always see various responses. And those responses don't just teach you about the hero. They show you what, what those people care about. And so as, uh, as Mr. Red read, uh, Matthew, uh, we're, all we're going to do is walk through and look at three different people and ask, what are their responses to the hero? What does that show them about, what does that show us about them? And how could that be a window into our hearts and how we respond to Jesus? So we're going to look at uh, Herod that shows us opposition to the hero. Then we're going to look at the scribes and the religious leaders that show us apathy to the hero. And then we're going to uh, look at the wise men or the magi that show us worship. All right. So Herod, opposition, scribes, apathy, and um, uh, wise men worship. First, Herod, verse 1 through 8 and 16. Herod lets you know that he's a king, and that's actually really important. We know a lot about Herod from history. We actually know that at one point he uh, executed his wife. He executed his mother-in-law and three sons and 300 court nobles all on the same day because he got a whisper that they might betray him, that they might, they might take his power. And so remember that when these three wise men arrive in the caravan to Jerusalem, the capital, the, the place where King Herod is, and they ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? That meant something. Like I imagine the scene that there's kind of all this fervor and music, you know, kind of like this palace. And then you hear, where's this person born king? And it's like, er, the music stops and everybody stares because they know if someone is claiming there's another king here, this could be trouble. That's why the text says King Herod and all of Jerusalem with them was troubled because Herod is capable of doing awful stuff if he feels threatened. And when he hears that there's a king that's born, it's threatening. And so Herod, what he does is he divides this shrewd and evil plan. And he tells the wise men, hey, why don't you go and tell me where, uh, where this new king is and then come back, report to me, and I will come and I'll worship him. And when he discovers that the wise men did not follow his plan, they left another way, what does he do? He reacts with such anger that he actually murders every two-year-old male boy uh, in the town of Bethlehem to try to stop the threat of kingship uh, to his kingship and power. That's the reaction of, hero, uh, of Herod. Upon hearing the, the, the kind of entrance of the hero, Jesus' arrival, he actually rebels and he attempts to destroy the hero by massacring children. Now, when we hear that, if you're like me, we think that it, that's dark, that's evil, and you're correct. But I think there's a way of, that we can kind of dismiss that because it sounds so extreme that that's not me. Uh, one of my favorite commentators, Frederick Bruner, here's what he says. He says, Herod is not merely the gospel villain. Herod is every man. Herod is not merely the gospel vi villain. He's every man. How so? Because I want to suggest that Herod's extreme reaction is actually a window into how our hearts work. Right? The the reaction to hero Jesus or any hero is always dependent on your perception of what the hero is doing for and to you. And what does Herod love? Herod loves power. Herod loves control. 
Herod loves being in charge. Herod loves comfort. Those are the things that he desperately wants because those make him feel stable and okay. And when he hears that there's a new king on the scene, then guess what gets threatened? Power, control, and comfort. And so when those things begin to get threatened because of King Jesus, Herod has a choice. He can either humble himself and worship Jesus, or he's got to eliminate the threat to his power and control. And that's what he decides to do, to massacre children. So one person put it this way, if we are determined to get our own way at all costs, we will go to any lengths to eliminate all trace of Jesus' claims on our life. That's what we do. And so now I think, if you're like me, you're starting to see how Herod's opposition to Jesus is a window into all of our hearts. Our hearts try to, try to destroy anything that threatens the thing that we prize. So uh, when the pandemic started, you know, like two years ago, I think me, like a bunch of y'all, uh, started watching a lot of TV uh, more than usual. And one thing that ESPN did that was brilliant is they pushed their scheduling of uh, The Last Dance, which is the documentary on Michael Jordan and the Bulls franchise. They pushed it up to the pandemic so everybody would watch. And what was fascinating is the kind of the villain, if you will, of The Last Dance is the general manager named Jer Jerry Krause. If you watch this, Krauss is actually the architect of the team. He's the one who, uh, who uh, drafted Scottie Pippen. He's the one who realized that Dennis Rodman would pair really well with Jordan and, and create this kind of uh, dynamic team. But the way the documentary goes is that Jerry Krauss, his heart loved something. It loved applause. It loved recognition. Uh, and that's what he was living for. The problem is there's this man called Michael Jordan that's also on the team arguably the greatest of all time. And it says the Bulls start winning, who gets the applause, who gets the credit is Jordan. And so what, that, what the documentary begins to show is that basically Krauss has a choice. He can either fight Jordan to try to get the recognition or he can humble himself. And actually it's what splits the dynasty because Krauss could not let the recognition go. He could not let the credit go and it split him apart. And so my question is, have you seen Herod in yourself this morning? Have I seen it? Because I really think if, if you've never felt yourself resist Jesus, I'm not sure you're being honest about what, what he claims. I'm not sure you're seeing as clearly as Herod sees. Because we talk about Jesus a lot about being a personal savior, and he really is. But if the wise men had shown up and had said, hey, I heard that there's a personal savior named Jesus that was born, Herod would have done nothing. He wouldn't, have raised a, he wouldn't have raised a finger. But when there's a new king named Jesus, that lays claim on everything. And this is the principle. When Jesus' kingship threatens what makes us feel secure and significant, we're either going to humble ourselves or we're going to dismiss Jesus. It's the only options. It happens with the rich young ruler later on in Matthew where G Jesus looks at him and says, he asks about eternal life and he says, sell, sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow me. And he walks away sad. The only person that Jesus ever personally looked at and said, follow me, is the rich young ruler. And he walked away. Because Jesus threatened the thing, money, that he's convinced brought him safety and power and significance. And that happens to us in Oxford. Money's still a deal. Money makes us feel secure and powerful. And Jesus' kingship claims it, all of it. Which means submitting to him means he calls us into generosity putting others before ourselves, love our neighbor. But because money feels like such a security, 
we just won't listen to Jesus. So we do things like we, we shade truth on taxes to have more. Sometimes we have more concern about the value of our house or the value of our neighborhood that people who are moving there, they're not people to be loved and served. They're people to keep out and to fight against. And so we just don't listen to Jesus. If, if our hope is in people's acceptance and people liking me, it can look like at school, you know, if you're in junior high or senior high. Like Jesus claims kingship over what other people think of me, and he says I'm to be generous and kind. But the way to acceptance is to make fun of other people. And so I just dismiss Jesus. And so Herod shows this, this window into our heart that we will always oppose the hero whenever he threatens the thing that we're convinced makes us secure, brings us significance. Then second of all, you have these scribes, right? Verse 2 through 6. Um, I, we kind of missed this reaction. I would have missed it if it hadn't been for commentaries and probably a guy named Brian Haybig. Um, but that, these, uh, these scribes were religious overseers. They're, they're the Bible experts, Okay. And so when this entourage from the east, these wise men come and they begin asking about the one who's born king of the Jews, Herod, again, this is, I mean, he gets it. He consults the Bible people and asks, where's this Messiah supposed to be born? And this was amazing. The Bible teachers, they get 100 on their Bible test. They nail it. They said, Micah says he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And then, right, that's when Herod concocts his plan. He sends them on. But I, this is what I think is a little strange or maybe even shocking. And it could be out of complete fear of Herod, which I understand. But the people of the scribes and the religious uh, people, they built their life on the scriptures awaiting the Messiah. That's what their whole life was about. And all of a sudden this entourage shows up and starts asking about the, this, this Messiah, this, this uh, king of the Jews. They say he's supposed to be born in, in Bethlehem. And what's interesting is, None of them go. Not a single scribe or religious expert shows up in Bethlehem. Think about that. Like they are immersed in the scriptures and immersed in religion, but they never are compelled to move towards Jesus. They know the Bible and they miss Jesus. They miss the hero. That's where I think the scribes and the religious leaders, they show us a different reaction to the hero. It's still opposition, but it looks like apathy. There's actually a way to know the Bible, to use the Bible, and to miss Jesus. It looks like untouchable apathy. So, you know, I can illustrate it from my own world. Uh, in the history of kind of my conservative evangelical world, it, it, honestly, it's sad because we're the ones who pride ourselves in kind of Bible knowledge and theological precision. Like, we're almost to an annoying degree. We're, we're the people who are going to get the theology right. Yet in the 50s and 60s, a guy named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. comes along and asks people to join in against, against segregation, against the abuses of racism, and realize my world that knows the Bible and prides itself on interpreting the Bible correctly used the Bible in a way to resist Dr. King's call, which means we miss Jesus. We missed his call. My world rejected Jesus by using the Bible. That's fascinating and sad. And I know this sounds upside down because Christians are the scripture people. If you ever come to RUF, hopefully you realize we think the Bible's a big deal. Christ prays, sees the Bible as God's inerrant authoritative word. But there's a way that you can use Bible knowledge 
and actually wield the Bible in such a way that, it, that you, it keeps you from receiving and submitting to King Jesus. Maybe you've experienced a parent or a friend who has lots of Bible knowledge, but is just mean and harsh. And the Bible is actually used as a way to control you or to shame other people. And the whole time, that parent or friend is apathetic to Jesus. Like some of the meanest people I've encountered are people who know the Bible well. Uh, or the Bible can be used as a way to make myself untouchable. If I know the Bible a little bit better than you, I have just enough Bible knowledge, I can find a way to justify what I'm doing, even though it's wrong, because you don't know what I know. Or I can use the Bible as a way to get what I really want, a secure and comfortable life. And so if I can, if I can date God's way, or if I can uh, you know, do rush God's way, or if I can be a friend God's way, or whatever, then I'll get what I really want. And it's a way that I try to secretly control my life. But it's apathy. It's not trusting Jesus. It's apathy. And the way that we know it is when I don't get that thing I think I'm supposed to get, anger comes out. And so at the end of the day, I'm around the scriptures, but they're not bringing me to Jesus to love and adore him. And so the scribes and the religious leaders, they reveal something about the human heart. There's a way that we can be around the scriptures. There's a way we can be around religion and yet be unmoved by Christ. So the other question I would ask us this morning, this is directly from my friend Brian Habig, is this. When is the last time, if you claim to be a Christian, that you actually adored Jesus, that you've been moved by him? And so we've seen that there's a reaction to Jesus by Herod that shows us opposition, kind of overtly. And then we've seen there's a reaction to Jesus by the scribes and the religious leaders that shows apathy, still opposition, but it's apathy. And then there's the wise men. And they show us what worship looks like. I'm actually going to use the term magi, which is actually the Greek name uh, that's used, because I think when we hear wise men in our culture, it almost romanticizes them as these people that, man, they look awesome. I would have followed them. But like magi is short for magicians, not like David Blaine or David Copperfield, like magic that's forbidden in the Bible of trying to control the supernatural. That's what they were. And we, it's, we're told they're from the East, which means they worship the gods of the East, which was like modern day Iraq, probably, you know, Babylon, Persia. And they were astrologers, astrologers, which means they tried to look at the sky and ascertain God's will by reading the stars. Here's the deal. All three of those things I just told you, trying to control the supernatural through magic, expressly forbidden in scripture. Worshiping the gods of the East, expressly forbidden in scripture astrology, trying to read God's will through the stars, expressly forbidden in scripture. Like the magi are lost in every way. They're the last people you ever thought would show up at Jesus' birthday. But here they are. They become, interestingly enough, the paradigm of what it looks like to respond to the hero like we're supposed to. And look what happens. Like first you just... Behold the kindness and goodness of God. God stoops down, and think about this, he speaks to them in a language that they understand. To use another friend's term, he speaks their love language. What, what do they love? They love the stars, and they love interpreting dreams, and when God speaks to him, he speaks through them through a star and through dreams. He condescends and meets them where they are. He's like this, he's like this father that will do anything to get people to see how wonderful his son is. Okay, I'll speak through a dream and stars. That's the language that you know. And so one of the ways that you actually start to worship him is I start seeing that all of life, all of life is an invitation to trust him, 
even the bad stuff. It's all calling me to see who Jesus is. But then secondly, like just start imagining the scene, right? They, they arrive at King Herod and they're told that Bethlehem is the place from scripture. So then the star appears again and they go to this house. And again, it's Jesus probably isn't an infant. He's probably six months, maybe a year old. And so they knock on the door, if there's a door, and the door opens. It's where you can imagine. And there's Mary standing there. Maybe she's, she's holding the hand of Jesus, you know, just by her. And they see Jesus and they start worshiping him. They bow down. Maybe they start chanting some Eastern chant and sing. And then they go and they grab all these bags and they open them and they start giving all these expensive gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then verse 10 says that they rejoice exceedingly with great joy as they're doing it. That's horrible grammar. But it's trying to get to, across that like something is coming out of them that they cannot control. And I was trying to think like, okay, how, like how, do, how do we get that feeling across? So I, I made up this scenario, okay? Imagine you're at a football game and you're playing Arkansas. <laughs> and they score. You're an Ole Miss fan with no time left to, go, uh, for, to make it 52-51. Just imagine that. And you, you realize they're going for two. And at that point, you think, we're going to lose. Every time we lose to Arkansas <laughs> in miserable ways, this is going to happen again. But you watch the play, overthrown. What happens at the moment the ball is overthrown? Like, you are grabbing people, screaming. You are hugging random people. You're saying things like, I never doubted. I knew this was going to happen. And like, just massive celebration. That is exceeding great joy. That's what, that's what these wise men were doing as they are looking at a child. So keep imagining the scene. They get another dream that tells them to go home a different way. So they walk, you know, they ride on their animals. It probably took them three months to get to Bethlehem, three months back. So they've now been gone from six months from their family and their friends. And here they come back, right? Now just imagine, again, Mays didn't happen, but just imagine. So the, the wife and the kids and the town show up after six months and they say, okay, what'd you find? What'd you do? They say, we found him. We found the king. He was a little child and we worshiped him and gave him gifts. And the family's like, six months, amazing, right? Six months you were gone. Like, what else happened? What, like, what did he say? What did he do? Did he give you anything? Like, nope. We just worshiped him. And it was awesome. It was enough. I mean, I, I think they'd be like, that's it? But that's the point. Have you ever experienced anything where something moved from a means to get, what, get you what you really want to that became the end itself? And you realize this is the point? Uh, I've experienced this over my life, um, married to a woman uh, named Liza, used to be Liza Thompson, but um, my mom is here, she'll not like me saying this, but I did not grow up liking Broadway musicals, no matter how many times my mom showed me Sound of Music, hated it, thought it was boring. Uh, and then my, my junior year, I meet this freshman named Liza Thompson, and I found out she likes musicals in Broadway. So I decided to tell her I like musicals in Broadway. Uh, I tell her about how I grew up watching, you know, Sound of Music. My mom showed it to me all the time. Mom's in the choir, love music. Uh, so, uh, I, so I spend money 
to buy uh, tickets to this Broadway show at the Orpheum, and we go. So the only reason I'm spending money on Broadway tickets is to try to get Liza, and it worked. It was awesome. Okay, so, we, so fast forward, we've been married for 15 years now. Through her, I've actually come to love musicals to the point that like three years ago, there's this musical called Dear Evan Hansen that came to Memphis. I spend much more money, astounding amounts, because I really, and, and we go and you're like, oh yeah, you're going to be with Liza, right? Well, kind of, but like, here's the deal. There, there were so few tickets left we got some of the last two. And so Liza's was tic- the ticket was right here. And I was like in the back. And at intermission, we like waved to each other. And that was it. And here's the deal. I loved it. I loved it. Because it wasn't about getting Liza anymore. It, like, I actually begun to appreciate Broadway and the musicals. It, it was the end in and of itself. This is what it looks like to respond to the king. This is what the magi do. That Seeing the hero as he truly is, the goal is to worship him. He's the point. It's not to get something else out of him. Adoring and delighting him is the goal, not getting something else. And do you know one of the signs that you've begun to kind of respond to the king as he's supposed to be responded to? It's that you give gifts like the Magi. You hold things with an open hand that you used to clutch so, so close, and there's actually joy in it. You start giving money away, even though money is the thing that makes me feel okay. Uh, You start giving comfort away to make others comfortable. You start giving time away to care for other people. You start giving up being right because I'm righteous in Jesus' sight. Because all those things they used to hold on to, they're worthless compared to knowing Jesus. And so the way that we begin to respond like the Magi is you have to see the situation. This is how I'll kind of bring us to an end. We have to recognize, yes, we're like Herod. Yes, we're like the scribes. I want to be my own king. I'm apathetic towards Jesus. I'm calling the shots in my life, and it's not working. But then you actually have to see that Jesus the king is good. You will never entrust yourself to Jesus unless you're convinced that he's actually good and he's for you. Yes, Jesus is a threat, but he's a threat only to the things that want to destroy you, which means that we know more than the Magi actually knew. Because if you even thought it was incredible the way that God condescended to the Magi and spoke their love language through dreams and, and stars, the Magi would say, man, we had not seen anything yet. Because what's going to happen later on in Matthew is this baby is going to become an adult. And he's going to be arrested and he's going to be put on trial and he's going to be mocked. And what's interesting is the same two groups show up. You have Pontius Pilate, the Roman Empire, and you have the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. And they're interacting with Jesus and they hate him and they want him crucified. So they wrap him in robes and they put a crown of thorns on his head and they call him a king out of, out of mockery. And Matthew never uses the term, the whole gospel again, king of the Jews until one point. You know what it is? Jesus goes up on a cross and a sign above his head says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And they start mocking him saying, oh, come on, show your power, get down, save yourself. And in the greatest act of humility and the greatest act of power and love, he stays on the cross, showing what a true king is like. That real greatness, real defeat of enemies is actually going to be in dying, dying for them. It'll be in paying the penalty for all of my heredness and all of my apathy. Why? To free me and you from clinging to all those other things that we think are going to bring life but are leading us to death. To cleanse us from apathy and darkness. 
And so that one day, someday, this is what's incredible. When Jesus the King returns to make all things new, you will actually see that God the Father, like the Magi, gives gifts to his son with exceeding great joy. Do you know what those gifts are? Jude tells you that the Father will present the Son with exceeding great joy with gifts, and that gift is you, his children, cleansed by the blood of Christ, righteous in his sight, presented to Jesus as his groom forever. Seeing that is the only thing, I think, that will begin to melt the heart so that we actually worship Jesus and trust him with everything. That's my question. What's your reaction this morning to the arrival of Jesus? What's, it, what's your reaction to seeing his, his life and death and resurrection? There can only be one king. And when you see it, it actually is going to disturb you. And that's okay, because I would invite you to worship him. He is good. And the hands of the king are healing hands. Let's pray. Father, um, it really is amazing that you wanted to give your son something, and in your wisdom and love, that gift uh, is us. Us who are apathetic, us who run away, us who, because of what we've done, uh, the death of Jesus had to happen. But would you work by your Holy Spirit to help us to see what we struggle to believe, that you're a king, but you're a king who is good. You're a king who lays down his life for, for rebels. And that would melt our hearts that we would worship you. In your son's name I pray. Amen.